before we begin today's video, I wanted to let you know that I had a long interview with Eric Kajewski, better known as Trad Cat Knight. I interviewed him for this channel on the topic of Marie Julie Jeheni, the Three Days of Darkness, and the Great Apostasy and the Coming Chastisement. It was one of the best interviews done for this channel to date, but for some reason technical issues resulted in the video not surviving. I hope to have him on again when he is available for media appearances in a couple of months so we can try to go over that subject again. Until then, you should know that Eric has done more work on the topic of Mary Julie Jeheni and the Three Days of Darkness than pretty much anyone else. He has many, many hours of material on his website, tradcatnight.org, so go check it out if you're interested. I figure I should let you know that that much given that the interview was lost due to technical problems, which is truly unfortunate. Anyway, on to today's subject. You may have noticed that Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano is back in the news, this time for having given the Washington Post an 8,000-word interview, which had been conducted over the course of several months. As can be expected, the Archbishop in hiding dodged questions about his clerical status within the Church, or his location, or other issues that he deemed irrelevant to the crisis ongoing in the Church today. As much of what he said will sound familiar to those of us who have been following Vigano since he dropped his first testimony on the world on the Feast of the Queenship of Mary on the New Calendar in 2018. All of that isn't really worth repeating here, save to say that it's the usual pointing out of the obvious. That credibility is completely lacking in the cases of men like Cardinal Whirl, Cardinal Supich, friend of this channel, or even Francis, whom Vigano says is hiding the evidence about McCarrick. And it's this accusation that I find most interesting, because Vigano asks a question that no one is really asking. How did McCarrick get his job as the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C. in the first place, since it's well established that his crimes were known by the hierarchy at that point? That question is based on his history as a predator, and sexual deviant being widely known within the Church and in the, in the United States and in Rome for many years prior to his most powerful elevation. This question is hard to answer, given that McCarrick was punished in such a way that no appeal is possible, and due process was denied, and that's the Vatican's prerogative. That may sound odd to us, given that McCarrick is a sexual predator with a history of preying upon minors, but due process does guarantee that an investigation can be conducted in such a way that questions like the one posed by Vigano, how did McCarrick rise to power, can be investigated and answers uncovered. And it's those answers, Vigano says, Francis does not, made want, does not want made public. Quoting Vigano's words from the Washington Times, quote, Because of the nature of the punishment, McCarrick was deprived of any opportunity to appeal the sentence and was deprived of due process. Having made the sentence definitive, the Pope has made it impossible to conduct any further investigation, which could have revealed who in the Curia and elsewhere knew of McCarrick's abuses when they knew it, and who helped him to be named Archbishop of Washington, and eventually a cardinal. Note, by the way, that the documents of this case, whose publication had been promised, have never been produced. The bottom line, Vigano says, is this. Pope Francis is deliberately concealing the McCarrick evidence. End quote. That's a major accusation, but one that isn't surprising to any of us. And at this point, few of us are actually surprised by anything going on in this pontificate, or with his handling of the abuse crisis in the church, especially since McCarrick was one of the biggest advocates for Francis at the last conclave by McCarrick's own public admission. What little information that can be found about Ted McCarrick reveals that he was ordained a priest in 1958, 
by now-revealed sexual predator Cardinal Spellman. In 1977, McCarrick was consecrated a bishop by Terence Cook, who was also ordained and consecrated by Spellman, but is on his way to canonization. However, despite that, Terence Cook was an outspoken defender of life, stood against Catholic involvement in terrorism in Ireland, and was generally actually Catholic. McCarrick's career was one of the constant was one of constant ladder climbing, with promotions to better and more important East Coast dioceses, until he was elevated to the office of cardinal by John Paul II in 2001, at a time when JP II was thought to have been barely functioning due to bad health. In 2006, he was named to the prestigious office of Cardinal Archbishop of the United States, which enabled him to rub shoulders with American presidents, diplomats, and important leaders from around the world, and to do so out in the open. His history of political corruption is legendary, with stories of envelopes of cash being handled and passed around for various nefarious purposes. The question of how McCarrick was able to rise to the ranks of the Episcopate can be at least partially answered by his involvement in the founding of the Papal Foundation in 1990, which raises money for the mission of the Pope in various parts of the world. The Papal Foundation collects large donations from wealthy donors across the West, but mostly from those living in the United States. Its initial offering was a staggering $156 million, which, is, which was made available to John Paul II's missions in 1990. Although the Papal Foundation does have rules on how much money can be withdrawn at any given time. And it's nowhere near $156 million. Never underestimate the influence of money, even on good men, in making important decisions about who gets to govern and who gets promoted. One of the sad characteristics of the crisis of modernism is the focus on material issues with only the trappings of the gospel given to them. Social justice, environmentalism, or really any topic that the USCCB talks about are pretty good examples of the false gospel promoted by the modernists in the hierarchy. That material gospel needs money, and lends itself to corruption beyond the theological sphere. Like I said, money can make even the best of men make questionable decisions about loyalty and the rewards of good service. Money talks, as they say, and in the case of McCarrick, morality walked. There's certainly more to the story of how McCarrick was elevated to the office of Cardinal by John Paul II, who certainly had to have known of the allegations against McCarrick, especially since Cardinal Ratzinger was assisting John Paul II heavily at that point in his papacy. There were checks and balances available. But it is my contention that the influence of his papal foundation played a key and critical role in McCarrick's success. Back to Vigano, who sums up the situation in the church today in this way, quoting again from that Washington Post article. For nine long months, he, meaning Francis, did not say a word about my testimony, and even bragged and continues to do so about his silence, comparing himself to Jesus. So either he spoke or he kept silent. Which is it? We are in a truly dark moment for the universal church. The Supreme Pontiff is now blatantly lying to the whole world to cover up his wicked deeds. But the truth will eventually come out about McCarrick and all other cover-ups, as it already has in the case of Cardinal Wuerl, who also knew nothing and had a lapse of memory. End quote. A couple of things here. Wuerl succeeded McCarrick in Washington, which means he had access to McCarrick's records, and had certainly heard the stories about McCarrick and his exploits that had to have been making their way around the diocesan offices in Washington, D.C. Wuerl absolutely knows more than he's letting on. Days after the initial Vigano testimony was released in late August, Wuerl made a trip to Rome to meet privately with the Pope, a meeting that took place in the first days of September. 
It'd be revealing to know what was spoken of at that meeting, and to know what kind of deal was made for Worrell and McCarrick, because one had to have been made. It's worth considering, given that McCarrick's old New Jersey C is now hosting its second annual First Deadly Sin Mass, and is overseen by Cardinal Tobin, he who used to be Marcel Maciel's personal driver. If you're noticing a pattern here, you are not alone. The American Episcopate is full of rotten fruit. Many men appeared to have benefited directly from McCarrick's career, including men like Tobin, who were very close to him, and they appear to be continuing the work he started. Francis, on the other hand, may have benefited directly from McCarrick's illegal lobbying prior to and during the Conclave that eventually elected him in 2013, and in the Conclave that very nearly did so in 2005, where it is said that he lost to Cardinal Ratzinger by only a mere handful of votes. Lobbying can invalidate a conclave, according to my understanding of canon law, although I'm sure there are stipulations on just how that works. The idea of, the co of an ideal conclave is rather simple. The cardinal electors are supposed to take the election of a supreme pontiff as a religious matter, as a deadly serious one, and should spend their time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament and in fasting if they are able. That's the logical thing to do if a conclave is taken as one of the most serious religious matters any participant will ever engage in in their lives. It's not to be treated as a political affair, which sounds laughable, given that the long history of conclaves shows political battles taking place, and even the machinations of earthly princes being brought to bear on the conclave itself. But the misconception is widely believed that the Holy Ghost chooses a pope, which is not how it works. Ideally, the cardinal electors would treat the conclave as a religious experience, and through their serious prayer and fasting, would open themselves to the guidance of the Holy Ghost. But of course, that is rarely how it works, especially in the post-conciliar era, where politics seems to matter more than a supernatural view of the faith. The belief that the Holy Ghost chooses the supreme pontiff is the result of, ironically enough, a form of modernist clericalism that places undue trust on the princes of the church who have promoted a gospel of activism instead of evangelism. The idea that the Holy Ghost chooses the Pope is one we encounter if we make the mistake of having these conversations with normal everyday Catholics who are unaware of the extent of the corruption in the church, who think of Francis as some angelic being because he is the Pope, when in reality the Holy Ghost only illumines the minds and hearts of the conclave participants if they open themselves to that through prayer. We get the leaders we dis deserve, especially in a hierarchical church where the hierarchy are as big as sinners as the rest of us, if not worse, given the potential for corruption that power and access to that kind of money brings. We know that McCarrick made early trips to St. Gallen, Switzerland, in the mid to late 50s and beyond, and met with influential prelates of the church who would then direct both his career and the direction of the church at the council, especially in the crazy years after the council, where all manner of bad ideas were entertained by the authorities in Rome in the name of the spirit of Vatican II. We know that McCarrick made trips with envelopes full of money, well before his founding of the Papal Foundation. This was almost certainly due to his connections in Switzerland. If you're wondering why Francis would cover up for McCarrick, it's probably because McCarrick is both the kingpin of the Lavender Mafia and the linchpin to so very nefarious figures that if they were made public, could bring the whole edifice of modernism crashing down around the men leading the church today, with untold casualties in the form of Catholics apostatizing from the church. Knowing this, you shouldn't wonder why he was placed in monastic community in rural Kansas as punishment far from the prying eyes and ears of the media and investigators. If they, could, if they could, they would have spirited him to Rome, but that has too many risks, 
and right now the whole modernist house of cards is more vulnerable than at any time in the recent history of the church. If you want to do something about this, pray and do acts of penance for the truth to come out, that this great revealing that seems to be going on right now continues, and that Francis, McCarrick, Wuerl, Supich, and the rest repent before they join Bernadin, Spellman, and others in the hereafter, and share information with Catholics who aren't aware of how bad this situation is, so that they wake up and help in this fight through their prayers and their acts of sacrifice. And as always, thank you for those who support this channel and channels like this. Your support enables all of us to continue to spread these messages. For Return to Tradition, I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.